In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom's return to Jerusalem provides him opportunity to get revenge over his father, David. Absalom cunningly plots to steal the hearts of the people of Israel, gradually amassing a significant following and ultimately undermining his father's authority. As carefully as he positions himself as an alternative ruler, the once unshakable foundation of David's kingdom is rocked by Absalom, by the treachery of his own flesh and blood. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, June 30th. You're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. In addition to your generous contributions and support, Thy Strong Words also sponsored by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF is dedicated to translating and publishing and distributing Lutheran resources that are firmly grounded in the Scriptures, centered on Christ, inspired by the Reformation mission. For more information about LHF and how you can collaborate with them in this essential mission, please go to their website at lhfmissions.org. This morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us explore, divide, discern 2 Samuel chapter 15. It's the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Boisclair. Welcome back to the program. able to be with you today. Good, good. Oh, I didn't hear you there for a second, but I'm happy that we finally got you. Um, good. I, I'm just always excited to have you on. Do an excellent job. Um, regular of the show. Um, anything interesting going on for you? Well, um, as uh, as you may know, I'm uh, interim pastor of um, uh, our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Overland, Missouri. You know, and they're going to be uh, choosing a pastor very soon. And uh, they they just got their new parking lot and and they got some new uh, a new playground for the preschool. So uh, that that's just some exciting things that are going on uh, in uh, the center of uh, St. Louis County. Well, it's it's great to see the church uh, continuing to thrive and grow even amidst some turbulent times and you know new parking lots things like that. It may seem like, you know, well, what, what's that about? But really it shows that the church is investing in their community. I love to hear about it. Yes, and, well, and uh, also, of course, we're, we're um, very much following the ministry of Jesus in this non-festival half of the church here. <laughs> That's right. Well, I tell you what, let's uh, start our time off together in prayer. If you would please lead us in that prayer. Let us pray, gracious Lord, your love and mercy for your people is boundless, great is your faithfulness. We thank you for another day of service in your kingdom. Guide us now as we study your word. It is one of the best ways we know to spend our time, because you have inspired it and caused it to be written down for our learning, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we might embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be warned by the sinfulness of Absalom to depart from deception and rebellion, but let us be encouraged by the penitence, patience, and faith of King David. May the precious gospel of your son Jesus go with us through the busy hours of this day, that we may always cling to him for salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, today we are diving into chapter 15, but before we do, it's a good idea, like I always like to do, is catch up, right? Where have we been? Uh, tell us a little bit. What, what did we talk about yesterday in case people missed the program? Well, in, in uh, chapter 14, there was the, uh, the task of, of the people of King David's government to reconcile him to his estranged son, uh, Absalom, who, of course, had uh, killed his brother Amnon and, and sort of was like uh, he had fled to Jeshur, which, of course, was his uh, I think his mother for, for his mother. Uh, her that was her ancestral land. Uh, the king Talmai, I think, was was uh, his grand uh, maternal grandfather. Uh, then um, uh, you know you find we find Job, uh, who who is an interesting fellow and and not and it's kind of a shady fellow, I think, in in King David's reign, uh, sort of organizing the reconciliation, uh, bringing back uh, Absalom. But of course, he's still. Uh, under probation, so the king keeps him from his presence, uh, and perhaps, and, and that probably means that he didn't have any uh, administrative functions or anything like that. But Absalom wanted more, so he burned uh, Joab's field to finally get his attention, and then he is brought into the presence of his father, and, and they reconcile. But how good of a reconciliation is, we'll find out in today's chapter. That's right. I mean, I, we're going to see that his subservience to David is pretty short-lived. <laughs> but let's go ahead and read the first six verses of chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him to him and say, From what city are you? And then he would say, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would then say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So yeah, it didn't take long, brother, before Absalom's hanging out by the city gate, I guess, what, intercepting people who want to talk to the king and, and then uh, giving them, giving them some, some things they like to hear. Well, and as was said uh, yesterday, uh, he is the ultimate Chad, uh, you know, just just uh, <laughs> quite quite a, a fine piece of uh, uh, specimen of a man from head to foot. And he also is engaging what we might call a first millennium B.C. political campaign, you might say. Yes. Uh, and, and, and perhaps not being completely honest about saying that there was no one. Uh, it, it, the literal Hebrews or literally the Hebrew says there is no one to hear you uh, with your complaints to the king. And, and so, you know, again, he's kind of stretching the truth. But how many politicians in our day and age do that? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's he's basically saying, yeah, no, no one's going to hear you. Maybe he's thinking, well, no one's going to hear you like me or or, you know, even or maybe maybe it's true. Maybe David didn't have a lot of time for people. So even if it were true, he's still, like you say, twisting it, manipulating it. And he's subtly showing people or trying to convince people that, well, if only I were king, boy, I, I would take care of you. There'd be a chicken in every pot. If I were king, I would be the one who would be giving you justice. But I guess David's, he's just too busy for you, unlike me. Yeah, he's definitely trying to manipulate people. And 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 in a sense, he also has the trappings of a king. He gets uh, himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And 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 he's he's right there on the job early in the morning at the at the at the gate, of course, is where the uh, administration of a of a city in ancient times was taken care of. So he's he's right on the ball. He's 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 probably showing that he can do uh, his father's job better than than his father is doing. And it seems to be working because, you know, people are coming and paying homage to him. Right. Verse five, whenever a man came near to pay homage, that's that's what you do to kings, not to their sons, especially to their disgraced sons, but they do. They, I guess it's it's working, and he takes them home. He's, I'm sorry, takes them home. He takes a hold of them. He kisses them. He he's you know very affable. People like him, and the text says so. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That word "stole" is 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 pretty a uh, pretty good translation the hebrew is ganav it it could mean deceive or to steal and really he's doing both isn't he yes and and this is uh somewhat uh, a meme you might say for when uh you have maybe two colleagues like uh, we can we can tell maybe two colleagues in a team ministry you might say in a church, and uh, maybe the younger one tries to steal the hearts of the congregation away from the older one. So in a sense, it, it is, uh, you know, that, that may be true because we're sinners. And, and uh, in, th- in this case, it's, it's, it's become uh, sort of a, a picture of what, what happens where you have two rivals, you might say, because Absalom is as, a- acting like a rival to his father, trying to uh, turn the people against his father. Do you think that Absalom is just still bent out of shape because of David's inaction to defend Tamar? Or do you think that this is just something that he probably would have always done? It's just in his heart to take to take over. In fact, his killing of his brother um, really eliminated the next in line. So I, I just wonder, do you think this is all spurned from from the sin against Tamar, or is this sort of all a long con that Absalom's been playing? He's wanted to be the king since since he first thought about it. Well, as someone, you know, uh, one professor said that all thinkers are either splinters or lumpers. I'm a lumper. I like to think of both and rather than either or. And so I would say there's a bit of both. I'm, I'm sure there is a lot of resentment on Absalom's part of what uh, Amnon did to his sister, and and in a sense, uh, his their father, King David, was kind of brought into Amnon's plan of of seducing her, and uh, so so there there is a lot of reason for Absalom to be grieved, and and David's inaction, which of course is is a result of of is kind of like in line with the judgment of God, but but then again, there's also 
uh, you know, a um, conceit and arrogance on the part of uh, Absalom. And, and definitely he wants to uh, maybe uh, become king a little earlier than he might. Well, his deception continues as we continue our text. Verse 7, And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If Yahweh will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to Yahweh. The king said to him, Go in peace. And he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went two hundred men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So I think there's some notable things that are happening here. Uh, one thing, there's a note, of course, in most Bibles probably, it says at the end of four years. Uh, in the Hebrew, it says 40 years, but uh, most scholars agree that's probably a scribal error, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense that it would be 40 years. We have some other uh, fragments that say four years. So this is a couple of years after he was reconciled um to his um to his father and so we have him saying i made a vow when i was on the run essentially and i want to go and fulfill that vow but hebron he doesn't pick on he doesn't pick by accident he picks hebron on purpose yeah absolutely it was at hebron that uh, his father was um proclaimed king of of judah and, and then, you know, so in other words, of, of David's royal, um, uh, his, his royal career, it, that sort of began at Hebron. And also, um, it, it's mentioned by the commentators that Absalom was born at Hebron. So he, he uh, had, you know, maybe some uh, family connections or he had some uh, friends in Hebron uh, that, were, that would be people he could, uh, you know, count on. Um, What's interesting in, in, in this particular uh, section of First and Second Samuel, it, it's like it, it, it's it's almost eyewitnesses that that are picturing this because we get all of these real uh, interesting details about what's going on, and and uh, and, and in this particular case, it, it just just like for instance, uh, maybe some of the ways in which they. Uh, you know, by indirection or maybe by um, maybe telling a little white lie, if you could talk about such a thing, they get they get what they want done. So but but certainly Hebron is is a, is a very significant place for him to choose and, 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 and for such a thing. So he's saying, you know, listen, go out there and we want you all to let everybody know that um, Absalom is king in Hebron. But yet he isn't king in Hebron. I mean, he, he's he's manipulating people just to, I guess, accept the fact. Um, it, it's almost like he's he's conquering without firing a shot, so to speak, without drawing the sword. Maybe more accurately, he he's playing an information war against them, a, a cold war. Even it's it's just a fascinating strategy that he's that he's using, and it's going to be 
moderately successful for him. Yes, uh, in, in, in a sense, the, um, as we see, though, of course, the Lord has different ideas, but uh, um, in, in I, can, I wonder what, for what reason they mention the fact that these 200 men that came from Jerusalem were, uh, they were kind of duped into doing what they were doing. Uh, you know, you, you wonder what, what the author's uh, purpose was in, in, in mentioning that. But it, it, it's kind of illustrative for uh, in, in, in discussing, you know, human sin and people participating in sin and so on to, to see this uh, dynamic going on. Yeah, I, I wonder too. I, I'm sure these are probably pretty prominent people that if they were to throw in with Absalom, people would listen to them. So he's invited these these guests. Uh, perhaps it's to show that there wasn't a conspiracy amongst the people to make Absalom king, but rather Absalom is conspiring to to have the people make him king. Does that make sense? Like maybe it's to show that this wasn't a dissatisfaction with David amongst his noble people, so to speak, but rather Absalom is taking these people who have no idea what's going on, and he's going to try to convince them that he's that he's the proper king or that they, they should uh, give fealty to him as king. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking about that out loud. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think you you're, you hit on the point. Uh, you know, afterward, when, of course, Absalom is defeated— uh, in the forest of Ephraim, um, then maybe those who supported him are were, are going to be called to account, and and maybe these these folks that uh, came down in the innocence of their hearts uh, gave that as their defense that they 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 did not um, uh, want to overthrow King David. And he brings with him too, though Ahithophel, uh, the Gilonite, David's counselor. Ahithophel is highly respected by David, um, for a while anyway, uh, and we're going to find that on a couple chapters, but he's highly respected by David. People appreciated his opinion. Whether or not he is on Absalom's side, we don't really know. There's some speculation that maybe he was, because he also could possibly be the grandfather of Bathsheba, um, which is interesting. Um uh, yeah, but regardless, we see here that he calls for Ahith to fell who's respected, maybe to give credence to him. Or maybe he's in on it. I don't know. But it says the conspiracy grew strong. People around Absalom kept increasing. So like I said, he's he's starting to see some success from his plan. Yes, uh, and it should be noted that Gilo uh, is five miles northwest of Hebron, or Hebron, and so, so he it was right in his uh, neck of the woods, you might say. Uh, some uh, commentators say that Ahithophel uh, was was the mastermind. Uh, well, I, I I think that um, the, the text is pretty clear that Absalom was pretty much at the center of his own rebellion, and Ahithophel, who for, was was David's uh, counselor, uh, was. Maybe someone who maybe didn't like uh, David's indecision and maybe his weakness and and uh, wanted a stronger king, you know. Just that's all speculation. But obviously, Ahithophel was said to be the one that one would consult, and he would give uh, something in the nature of the oracles of God. 
Yeah, it'll say later that people basically took his word as gospel, so to speak. Everything he said yeah. was from God. Um, whether it was from God or not, uh, it is uh, unclear. Even at any point, we're going to find later that God himself is going to conspire against Ahitophel. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Well, let's keep on going. Verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your, your servants are ready to go uh, to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And we're going to halt right there at the end of verse 17. So the word gets to David, right? The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Probably a little bit of hyperbole, certainly not every heart of every man, but basically, you know, he's turning the people against you. I think David's response is curious. I, I guess I would expect David to stay and defend the throne, but he, he just flees. Well, it, it, it certainly seems to be kind of like uh, jumping the gun. But if you look at the end of the last verse of the chapter that Absalom entered the city right when Hushai uh, came back into the city. Uh, after his conference with David on the Mount of Olives, and and um, so so in in a sense it was uh, you know obviously they were uh, you know taken off guard, um, and David who was a very experienced uh, man of war uh, thought well I, I, now's the time to retreat, and so um, that that's pretty much what's going on here, um, and and perhaps there is some soul searching some penitence on his part. You know, he, 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 I think he's thinking, well, you know, I've sinned against God. I've, I've really blown it as, as a man of God. And uh, perhaps it might be God's will for me to be succeeded by my son. You know, that may have been in, in his mind as well. Total humility, yeah, total penitence. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that David's whole attitude has shifted with the Atahaish incident, right? Once he commits that yep. sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, and of course, ultimately against Yahweh, he's confronted by Nathan, his whole, and of course he loses his son uh, that that came to Bathsheba, the first one. So so he, the whole thing has really disenfranchised him from the whole, so I, I think that makes sense, is what I'm trying to say. He goes out into the wilderness, it kind of recalls for us the period when David's out in the wilderness from Saul. Right. He's patiently waiting on Yahweh to give him the throne. And here he, he as you say, he might be doing some soul searching. He's patiently waiting to see if this is God's will. He is a man who seeks after the will of God in contrast to Saul. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and it says he went out and everybody in his household with him, except he leaves 10 concubines behind to keep the house right there to literally hold down the fort while he's gone. Unfortunately, they're going to come into play um, with uh, with uh, Ab, uh, Absalom, you know, asserting his dominance over King David's house. But that is not on the menu for today. But still, so we have the king. He goes out. 
and they halt at the last house, verse 18. And all of his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may Yahweh show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As Yahweh lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. Then Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Uh, stopping right there, the end of verse 23. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you go with us? Go back and stay with the king. What an interesting phrase from David. The king, David, is saying to this guy, why are you coming with me? Stay with the king. Is, is David, has, has, has he abdicated his throne? Well, I, I think that everything is up in the air right now, and he, he, he's not sure. Um, you know, he knows that, that this is some, a judgment um, for his sin, um, and, and in this particular case is, is like, well, maybe, maybe I'm not, I'm, I'm the de jure king, but I'm not the de facto king. Uh, Absalom is the de facto king now. And, uh, and I think that it's kind of like he, he's, he's trying to feel out his supporters. Uh, in this case, this was his elite personal army of the Carathites and the Pelethites and, and also some Philistines. You know, obviously when it's Pelethites, it refers to Philistines. And, and of course, and they are, they're captained by Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And uh, so in, in the case of Ittai, might, he might be kind of like singled out uh, for the other uh, persons in that the, these are like mercenaries, but I, I almost think they're not mercenaries. They, they're very much attached to David from the time that uh, he was, uh, he also served as a mercenary in the, um, in uh, Agag's uh, army of the Philistines. And, and, and so in a sense, uh, it, it's probably like uh, David wanting to determine from God, you know, what the, what the measure of his support is. Because, you know, in a sense, that, that may, would make a lot of difference. Are all the hearts of the people of Israel against me? Um, you know, how about my trusted bodyguard? And that's, that's why he uh, talks to Ittai. Well, I'll tell you what, folks. Why don't we take a break? We'll contemplate what we've talked about so far, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back. And when we come back, we'll keep on going through Chapter 15. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
but they need our help because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is uh, the uh, Reverend uh, David Boisclair. I'm sorry, brother, I forgot your name there for a second. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Before we get back to our chapter, though, I just want to remind you that you can reach out to me uh, with your questions or comments at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. And if you're going to be away from your radio this summer for any any bit of time, maybe you've just been busy or you've already missed a few episodes, or perhaps you're looking to take the show on the road with you, maybe on vacation, don't forget that you can subscribe to Thy Strong Word as a podcast using your favorite podcasting platform. And if that sounds too complicated, i got an easy solution for you. Just go into the App Store or the Play Store on your phone and download the KFUO radio app. You can listen to the station live from just about anywhere, and you can subscribe and listen on demand to many of KFUO's great shows. You can always just head over to KFUO.org, though, and you can listen live or on demand right there. So back to our text, brother, going with David out of the capital city are what his servants, his elite royal bodyguard, his militia, hundreds of others. So he has support, probably the hearts of the people, many of the people, too. But it's still looking bad for him, right? His son Absalom sitting on his throne, figuratively speaking, after deceiving the hearts of the people. And while David is out there soul searching or beginning his soul searching, what we really see are the foundations for what's going to be a civil war. Um, anything about what we've covered so far before we move on to the next verses? Well, it's it's interesting in uh, in verse twenty three where it speaks of him crossing the brook Kidron, sort of like as David is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the brook Kidron that he and his disciples crossed on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and if you look at um, Ezekiel, uh, I, I really love this picture where uh, when um, uh, God has has his uh, messenger take Ezekiel into uh, the temple at, at the time. You know, Ezekiel, of course, is in exile, uh, and the people are worshiping, uh, uh, you know, horrible gods in the temple itself. And then it says that the glory of God uh, lifts up and departs from the temple and crosses. In a sense, it doesn't mention crossing the Kidron, but it would have to as it goes to the Mount of Olives and there lingers for a time. Uh, showing, you know, showing, uh, you know, God is is departing from uh, the presence with His people, and that, and that's sort of like maybe it kind of gives you that picture when when you see King David crossing the Kidron. Oh, absolutely, and and well, that connects a lot to what happens next too, because we then have in verse twenty four the priests arrive, and Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zedek, 
carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favors in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Beathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back into Jerusalem, and they remained there. So whether David knows it or not, he's um, he's really establishing a, a lifeline. I mean, he does know it. He says, I'm going to wait at this certain place until you come and tell me. But really, these two priests are going to be key into giving him information about um, Absalom's plans. But it's interesting that he doesn't want to take the Ark of God with him. And at first, I suppose we could say it's because, well, he feels guilty, and he says as much, right? He doesn't really know what the Lord um, thinks of him at this point. I think there's also a tactical reason, right? The Ark has to be carried in a very peculiar way. Um, I guess it'd be pretty tough. It'd slow him down also as he flees. But it's just, it's just interesting on, on both sides of that. You know, David doesn't even feel worthy to be around the Ark of God. Yes, and and uh, in this particular case, he, he doesn't want to use God. I mean, he has no directive from God to uh, take the Ark of the Covenant with him. Um, and he, um, in, in a sense, he, he wants God to decide. He, he submits himself to God's will. And uh, it, what's really interesting is that... Uh, the um, the high priests Abiathar and Zadok, and then also Hushai become his fifth column in in Jerusalem. That is that that's sort of like in a but but it's done all in a proper and a noble manner. David acts so nobly uh, during during this particular time. And what's interesting is is when he speaks to Zadok as as a um, as a seer. Um, you know, he, in other words, he, he is, he, of course, interprets God's will through the Urim and Thummim, uh, you know, in the ephod of the high priest, but he also is, uh, got his, his eyes open as to what's going on, uh, with Absalom and his, and his, uh, uh, administration. And so he's a seer in both, in both those ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, I hadn't really considered that. You know, he's a seer also of what will be going on, as you say. You know, he has his thumb on the pulse, and so he needs him to be literally his his eyes. I, I wonder if that's an intentional double entendre or not. Uh, it sounds like you think it, it is, but I, I wonder. Well, he, uh, I think it was no one less than... Uh... Uh, Kyle Dalich, uh, well, those are two men, two old, uh, 200-year-old uh, interpreters of the Old Testament, but they, they thought that, that there was a double entendre with that. Yeah, I would have to agree with them then and you, but th- but that's a good one. I hadn't really thought of it. But that's exactly what they do. They stay behind. He's he's starting what will end up being a pretty elaborate spy network, but we're not going to get to that for a couple of chapters. But but yeah, he he is going out. He's doing some soul searching. And I love how and you pointed this out, how he is putting himself under the authority of God. 
So in these days, God communicates with his people through prophets, through the priests, through the Urim and Thummim. And, and of course, in these last days, he speaks to us through his son, through the word. We, too, need to follow David's, David's you know, example here. We need to put ourselves often under the authority of God. And, of course, in this case, it's not about wandering off into the wilderness to find out what God's will is. He's already revealed what his will is in the scriptures. But that's why it's so important for us to be in the Word, doing the thing we're doing now, because it's not just about stories of, of, of kings from long ago, but rather it's how God wants us to live our lives. And David is, David is just now starting to suffer the consequences of his own sin. I mean, he's going—we we talk about how, well, why doesn't he stay and defend it? Or why doesn't he um, just rally up the troops to fight against it? Why is he so submissive to this idea that maybe God has rejected him? Well, it's because he is recalling his sins. And sometimes we fail to do that. We, we just sort of bank on God's forgiveness, which we can certainly bank on, but we, we fail to examine ourselves rightly. And so I, I, I see here— an example for us to follow. What about you, brother? Yeah, and and um, our Lord Jesus quoting uh, from uh, the Pentateuch, uh, where he says, "Man shall not live uh, by every by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God." I think David learned that by his um, enduring this uh, judgment of God against him. And and in verse 30 it talks about him going barefoot with his head covered. I mean, and and so and then you know he is he is uh in repentance. I, you know, it's interesting I want to draw a parallel. In our own country we can see that the forces of evil are gaining quite a foothold in our nation and and in its government and everything. And and the, the you know there's always the anger and the and the desire to resist. But but there should also be a uh, penitence on the part of God's people, that uh, this may be God's, uh, you know, we can't say for sure that it is uh, specifically God's judgment, but when when things go hard in a nation like ours, uh, you know, we should recognize it as a time for for repentance and to to perhaps examine our lives and to uh, turn to God and trust in Him for His uh, guidance and help. You're absolutely right. It's so easy, especially for pastors, to get up there and and preach from the pulpit all the sins and the evils of the world. And don't get me wrong, we have to do that. But we shouldn't we shouldn't do that at the expense of looking inward, recognizing our own sins, our own contributions, and also, uh, you know, responding to the things of this world in the way that God wants us to respond. You know, I have gotten into a little back and forth with folks when I. Um, dared to say that in some cases we need to have compassion on the people who are out there lost in their sins because that's what Christ would have. And, and that anger, as as we're told in the scriptures, the righteousness of God is not produced by the anger of man, right? We don't our anger doesn't result in the same type of uh, righteousness that perhaps Jesus's own righteous indignation and anger was able to produce. Ours is always threatened and covered up by our sin. But yeah, so so really getting angry at the world doesn't do a whole lot of good. Now, it's not that you shouldn't be passionate and truthful and stand on truth and defend God's word, but but to be anger angry, which results from from fear, or to be angry, which results from a hatred even of others, 
yeah, I think it's time that we also repent of our own sins, that knowing that God is behind all of this. Not that he is the cause of sin, but he certainly will use it to bring about our repentance. And and, and there is repentance here with David. That's exactly what he's doing. Uh, verse 30, I'm just going to add two more verses because it's, it's important. Uh, verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David prayed, O Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So we see here that David is mourning, and he calls, well, I'm sorry, he leads his people in mourning. And I, and I really think that he sees that what's happening is not part of, you know, in accordance with God's will. He's not exactly sure yet, but, uh, you know, and, and that inspires him to pray that this traitor, Ahithophel, uh, that his counsel to Absalom would be turned into foolishness. And, and, and of course, uh, not to spoil things, uh, we will see how that happens in, in, the, in the chapters to come. But uh, as you can see, you know, David had, certainly has a sense what is righteous and holy. And, and, uh, and so obviously, uh, you know, he, he's touched by the treachery of this man who is, who is his counselor. And it's interesting, he's, uh, Ahithophel is, uh, is paired with another person that we will meet in just a few verses. Uh, Mount of Olives shows up here, right? And of course, that has some significance for us in Jesus's life, too. Jesus also ascended the Mount of Olives, um, but different situations for sure. Yes, and, and of course, he he uh, began his great suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweat blood. Um, you know, it's rather interesting uh, in uh, Roman Catholic polemics against uh, our, our Lutheran doctrine, uh, say, uh, you know, and oftentimes they bring up stuff that Luther said. Now, we don't subscribe to everything that Luther said, and we're, we're thankful to God that, that our uh, faith and our, our, our gospel uh, belief is, is centered in, in the scriptures and in the Lutheran confessions. But um, Luther kind of said that perhaps Christ, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, did not know how to distinguish between law and gospel. Now, you might say that that was maybe in a sense of, of Christ's, uh, he, he learned obedience by what he suffered, as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says. But, uh, you know, in a sense, it, it, it was a time of tremendous suffering for the Lord, that he sweat blood uh, as he prayed to his father, if it might be possible for the cup of drinking all of God's wrath would pass from him. And I think that's what David is praying here. When he says, Oh, Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. You know, we just, a few verses ago, we see that Ahithophel is David's counselor. And we see, or we discern, I should say, that Absalom takes him along to give credence to his, his coup. And then later, in just a couple of chapters, in chapter 17, we are told that Ahithophel, Fell's advice was as if consulting God himself, even according to David. So when I hear David praying, oh, Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, I see it a couple ways. One, always inherent in the prayer is, if it be your will, 
right? So I do believe that David is is not commanding the Lord to do something, but he's seeking, as Jesus said, you know, if this cup can pass from me, that's what I'd that's what I want. But he also knows that um that Ahitophel, if he is speaking for God, then he's then his goose is cooked. David knows that the Lord is against him. So why would he not pray that Ahitophel's counsel would instead be foolishness? So this he's wanting this to be fulfilled in the sense that if Ahitophel is now the counselor of Absalom, then may he be wrong. He certainly can be wrong, so may he be wrong. And then, of course, this is fulfilled yet again later on when Ahithophel gives some advice to Absalom. And while it does seem like good advice, in fact, uh, humanly speaking, it's excellent advice, um, God makes it so that they consider his advice um, not the best way to take. It's considered foolishness. So the Lord's going to answer this prayer in a number of different ways, but that's what I hear when David prays it. It's like, make this guy who everybody sees as your spokesman, even by myself, make him be wrong in this instance. Well, and I think that David even sees in this man that there, that there is uh, evil in the fact that he betrays his king. You know, this this is a tremendous sin that Absalom and and those with him are are committing. They are they are rebelling against uh, the proper authority that God has placed over them and over the people of Israel. And and uh, so so I mean, uh, it, it's kind of like you, when you know whenever we have to you know pick our way through life and maybe with uh, uh, with with a torch or a lamp or something to try to find the right way to go. Of course, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But uh, we can see uh, by their fruits, you shall know them. And uh, in the case of Ahithophel, uh, you know, it's it, the fruit of deception and, and rebellion. Well, and that would be especially egregious to someone like David, who uh, so honored the Lord's anointed that he refused to kill him, even though uh, Saul was seeking his own life, and he refused to dishonor him, and time again submitted to him in a way. So so yeah, this is especially egregious, I think, to someone like David, who seeks after and really respects uh, the Lord's, uh, well, his doing. Let's read the rest of the chapter. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him, with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with him, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So we have Hushai. Who who is Hushai? Um, And obviously David's setting him up to be really a, a key component in this underground network. Uh, he's going to be a double agent for David, but but who is Hushai to be that for David? Well, he comes, uh, he is called an archite, which is a clan of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's someone that's been associated with, uh, you know, with probably in the, uh, uh, the uh, 
court of Saul and then in the court of David. He has an official title that is the king's friend. That is a special title. In First Chronicles uh, chapter 27, verse 33, it says, kings, uh, uh, it says, Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai, the archite, was the king's friend. Uh, he, he is thought to have been very old. Um, he, um, uh, you know, he, he also shares, I mean, you know, he's just devastated. He's, he's very devoted to King David as, as all of them, even, even someone like Joab is, is, uh, devoted to King David, uh, all of the people that were around him in that case, um, except for some, uh, some like Shimei, as we will learn in, in a later chapter, but in, the, in this particular case, so he is a, an official in David's court. And then David says, you can be part of my fifth column. Yeah, I mean, part of that, that explains why he said, you, if you go with me, you're going to be a burden to me. It, obviously, David has hundreds of people who are going with him. Why would this one person be a burden? And I guess, once again, this seems to be the day of double entendres. Perhaps he's a burden in the sense that he's a very old man, and, you know, and that's just difficult to navigate. And he also is a burden because if he doesn't remain behind, David has even less people, even fewer people to be his his eyes and his ears, his advocates, his his seers in inside the kingdom of Absalom. And so Hushai is going to be really key in David's plans to help. And what does he say here? To help thwart, um, uh, to to turn the uh, the Atiphathel's, uh visions and advice into foolishness, his counsel. So he prays to God that the the counsel of Ahithophel will be turned into foolishness, and then he works toward that goal. And I don't think it's because he's trying to work God's hands, but obviously um, he, he's not. David's not just going to sit back and say, okay, now God, you just do whatever you want to do. He, he, he continues to also try to be faithful. He makes smart decisions. He says, you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Um, it, am I looking at that right? Or, you know, David's oh, certainly absolutely. not trying to take this into his own hands, I wouldn't say. Oh, absolutely. But he does care. You know, like right. you say, there, there could be those that are, are uh, kind of uh, lazy and lackadaisical that they don't really care. David certainly cares. But, he, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that some commentators say that we don't hear of Hushai after Absalom is defeated. And so it may have been possible that, uh, according to them, that, that maybe he was uh, executed by Absalom for, uh, you, know, uh, not, uh, you know, not giving him the best advice, the advice that he finally took. But it also could probably be thought that perhaps as an elderly man, he, he simply was taken home to be with the Lord. Right. Or at the very least, retired from saying things that are <laughs> consequential for the scriptures. There's so many different ways you can think of that. But he but he is. And, and I think that does that speculation brings up a good point, though. He's bring, he's putting his life in his to his hands. He when he goes back to be a double agent, he has to do something that he doesn't want to do. And that is feign loyalty to Absalom. And then by feigning loyalty and he, yes, he's he's expressing his loyalty to David, but he's also having to, well, you know, give advice that if not taken could result in his death. And so maybe it did. Maybe it did ultimately. But at the same time, I think David's action here, his both prayer to God that this 
um, <laughs> that this be taken from him, that 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 Atifta Fells would be considered a fool and that that he would be returned to the ark and to Jerusalem. But at the same time, he doesn't just sit around waiting for the Lord to act. He also does something. I, I feel like there's a lesson in that for us today. You know, not that we have to make things happen for God, but I don't think anywhere God tells us to just, well, you know, don't worry about working. I'll just provide you f- food and money and don't worry about um, growing in your faith. You don't have to read the Bible or go to church. I'll just, you know, magically put those things in your head. Um, we pray to God that he bless our efforts. Uh, I think there's a there's a both and there again. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and in this case, it's kind of like we, we turn to God that we might be his instruments, that he may work through us. Because as we see from his word, that's, the, that's God as, God's modus operandi, is to work through, uh, through means, through, uh, through intermediaries, you might say, um, you know, not to, not to call into question his almighty power and, and his being, uh, you know, qualitatively so much greater than we can possibly imagine, greater than the universe, uh, but that we could be privileged to be his instruments to do his will in his kingdom. And that, and that is the way David is, and that's the way Hushai is. Absolutely. Well, we've come to the end of our text and nearly to the end of our show. Anything else you want the people to know about what we've covered today? Well, it, it's rather interesting uh, that when when uh, David comes to uh, the Mount of Olives, it, it mentions that uh, it is there that uh, the people worshipped God. So, so some have said, well, that must be, must have been one of the high places, you might say. Uh, so uh, again, uh, but. You know, David, of course, was not party to that, but that, of course, would be used by uh, the kings of Israel and Judah that that were not faithful to God. And it would only be um, King Josiah that would finally remove the high places. (laughs) And uh, in this particular case, it it, it just just kind of information about the kingdom and and things that went on there. But I think most importantly is to see how David is, is a type of Christ. Uh, he is the king. He has all. This, he has authority over Israel, but he is. Uh, he of course uh, submits himself to whatever uh, judgment God may have. And of course, in Christ's sake, in, in Christ's name, he doesn't have any any sins. Uh, he has sins only by imputation. Our sins that are laid upon him, that he might take them away by suffering the wrath of God. And so you you have in David also a suffering servant as our Lord Jesus Christ is. Well, I think that's a great place to end our discussion this morning, folks. I'd like to thank the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri, and you're also the vacancy pastor at which church again now? That is uh, the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Overland, Missouri. Excellent. So blessings to all the saints under your pastoral care, brother, and thank you for being on the show. It is my joy and pleasure. All right, folks. Well, betrayals, curses, a scandal, that's all on the agenda for Monday when we turn to chapter 16. So as David is fleeing from his rebellious son Absalom, he's going to face enemies and, well, he's going to encounter some allies too along the way. Um, Ziba, a servant of Mephibosheth, brings him supplies, lies about his master's loyalty though. 
Shammai, a relative of Saul, hurls insults and and throws stones at the fleeing king. That's an interesting uh, event. But David has to decide how to respond to all these things. Meanwhile, Absalom is arriving in Jerusalem, and, well, he's going to follow some wicked advice from Atithophel. So until uh, Monday, rather, when we come together again, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.